Hello? 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 Yes, this is MCO. Hello? This is MCO. Hello? Hello? This is another MCO and transmission. get started. Um, welcome back everybody. Sutra Studies Sunday. Um, so tonight I'm going to do a sutra called the Dhammachaka Pavatana Sutta, uh, which I've done many on many occasions, but I've actually never recorded it uh, to my knowledge. Um, and it's a good place to start, even though we're not starting. <laughs> we're very deep in our sutra study. Um, but after last Sunday's class, where I sort of brought in all the different sutras and sort of tried to break down the world of Buddhist sutras, like all of them, and then tried to give you a framework of how to understand how they all fit together. Um, that was last week. And so this week I wanted to start with the first sutra. That's, that's what we're going to do tonight. It's a great place to start. Um, after all of our excursions into Mahayana Buddhism and all the wildness of that, to return to not only a Pali text or a text that's originally from the Pali canon, but not only one of the original texts, but the original text, I think is a great, a great idea. So we're going to do that. Um, yeah. Any questions from last time? Ah. Um, I'm going to use last week uh, the framework of the eight schools. I'll use that framework going forward in terms of if, if I introduce a new sutra, I'll bring that framework back up about these eight different schools. Um, you should just kind of keep in mind that this sutra is coming from what I deemed this initial first school of Buddhism, which would be... Um, mainly focused on the Vinaya, the monastic code, and philosophically focused on the early Buddhist suttas, or the, these early Buddhist sutras, like this one. Um, so that's what we're looking at, sort of first school, early Buddhism, basic Buddhism, right? Um, it is customary to always, when you're doing sutra, um, discourses, I guess, Dharma talks on sutras, there's sort of a format to the way it's done. I like to keep to that format. So the format is you always start with the title and explain what the title means. So we're going to do that. Um, you may notice that I'm using, up here on the board, I'm using the Pali. So this is in Pali. Uh, this one is the same title but in Sanskrit. Um, I'm using the Pali title because this sutra, this sutta, comes from that collection of suttas or sutras that were kind of translated from Pali. If you remember from last week, it was the big stack of books right here. Um, the kind of hundreds and hundreds of original sutras of what some people consider to be the earliest school of Buddhism. I don't consider it to be the earliest school of Buddhism, but some people do. Um, nobody argues, though, that this... Nobody argues that this isn't the first sutra. Everybody recognizes that this is the Buddha's first teaching. Okay, um, And it is called the Dhamma Chaka 
Pavatana Sutta, or in Sanskrit, the Dharma Chakra Pavartan Sutra, you'll kind of begin to notice that Pali and Sanskrit are very similar. They are actually very, very similar. In fact, you can read Pali as a southern dialect of Sanskrit, where they have a slight lift, and they say Dhamma instead of Dharma, and they say Nibbana instead of Nirvana. It's harder R's, harder B's, things like that. And so actually, once you start studying this stuff, to move between Sanskrit and Pali is not as crazy as moving between like Chinese and Sanskrit. So the first part of this, and uh, somebody asked a question, is that one word? Indeed, this is one word, Dhamma It's all one idea, and it means uh, turning the Dharma wheel, so a chakra, a Dharma chakra, to Pavartan, the Dharma chakra, and then the sutra about turning the Dharma wheel. So that's what the title means. Dhamma or Dharma is, of course, this basic Buddhist idea. Of course, it's not even a basic Buddhist idea. It's sort of a basic Indian philosophical tenet if you will, the idea of dharma, truth. Truth is usually what dharma means, but of course, anything that the Buddha said in these sutras, all the sutras, is considered the truth, the dharma, the teachings of the Buddha. So dharma becomes synonymous with the teachings of the Buddha. Etymologically, it's interesting to know that the word dharma, the root of it is dar, dar, and to dar something is to hold it, to have it is to dar, and so there's something about dharma, which is to hold it, to have it, and I, in my etymological excursions, have come to think of that as in English, when it's something that you're either like learning, like learning to play an instrument, or you're learning to memorize something, or you're just trying to figure something out. And then in English, when we say, oh, I got it. Like, I got it. You, you got it. You got it. I got it. That's to dharma. Dharma is to, to get it. Because what, what do you mean when you say, I get it, I got it? You, you mean you got it. Like, you, you know it. Not speculation. I, I got it. So dharma is like that. Chakra of course, is a wheel. And traditionally, this Dharma Chakra is an eight-spoked wheel. Right? But you should keep in mind this. This is interesting about chakra. You probably have heard of the, the chakras, the bodily chakras, these wheels. So chakra means a wheel. And um, kind of either before the Buddha, around the same time as the Buddha, or shortly after the Buddha, there developed this idea in India of these chakras, these energetic wheels in the body, of which there are these seven energetic centers, or like a root chakra. Or, or, these are energetic wheels that spin. A root chakra, sort of at the base of the spine, but kind of right by your sphincter. Um, about two inches below the navel, you have a chakra. So you have a root chakra, this chakra, chakra in your solar plexus, heart chakra, throat chakra, chakra right here, your third eye, and then this kind of 
uh, chakra that's like around here. And the basic idea of that system is that as you breathe in and out and you inspire and expire and you breathe in and out, not only air, but prana, what the Chinese call qi. So in breathing in and out energy, the idea is that as you breathe in, there are these wheels that turn based on this energy. And that as you kind of inhale, they kind of kind of spin. But that for some of us or most of us, the wheels are a little like rusty or kind of. And so it's kind of more like. And so a lot of yogic practices are about getting the wheels to spin. Uh, and these these. This energy is kind of very base. Like if you're talking about the root chakra, it's very base sexual energy. If you're, you know, these lower chakras are these very emotional base type stuff. And as you move further up, you get into like the creative chakra of the voice, creative expression, things like that, the mind, and then eventually spirituality. Buddhism is not really into the chakras. It's often you're hard-pressed to find talk of the chakras, those chakras in Buddhism. But it would seem that the Buddhists added an eighth chakra to the system, which is this dharma chakra. So when the wheel of ideas is spinning, the, the wheel of truth, and I often talk about how in, in these classes, when we really get to talking about this stuff and... I, everybody's minds are really on fire with these ideas and people are like, oh, but what about this? What about that? That, for me, is the Dharma Chakra. That's the Dharma wheel turning. And that is what Buddhism talks about. It's not just the Buddha putting into motion, putting into motion turning the wheel, but the idea is, is that it's spinning and that occasions like this keep it spinning. And if we were to stop doing this, the wheel would sort of stop. And that wouldn't be good for sentient beings. So. so Dharma Chakra, this wheel of the Dharma, and then turning it, and then the sutra about that. And the reason why it's called this is because this is the Buddha's first sutra. This is the Buddha's first teaching. Uh, the story, the background, of course, is that you have this, uh, this Indian prince guy, Siddhartha, as he was born, um, I'm not going to do the whole story of Siddhartha, of course, but the idea is that this prince who had everything he ever wanted, waited on hand and foot, um, you know, never even experienced uh, real weather. He was like shuttled in between these palaces to where when it was hot, he was shuttled to the palace where it was kept cool. And when it was rainy, he was shuttled to the palace where it was covered. And it went, you know, and so he never experienced real seasons. He never experienced any of this stuff. And, of course, the story is that he eventually gets exposed to old age, sickness, death, the realities of the world. And upon seeing these things, he decided to become a renunciate, a shramana. Shramana means to renounce, a world renouncer. Uh, wandered around, studied with all the greats in India, Alara Kalama, all these guys. Um, supposedly surpassed them all. Decided to go it alone. Uh, wandered around for a while, then took up under the Bodhi tree, sat there for quite a spell until he became enlightened, supposedly sat under the Bodhi tree for 21 days, for three weeks after he got enlightened. In some stories, he was reciting this giant sutra. In other stories, he was just contemplating what he had realized. In some stories, he actually even contemplating just checking out, just 
taken off, like, see you guys, good luck. But supposedly a god came and begged him to tell people about what he had realized. And so he returned to uh, the deer park, Ishipitana, where there were these five renouncers that he had been studying with before. He had been studying with a guy named Alara Kalama. Alara Kalama was considered the wisest guy in the woods of India. The Buddha supposedly surpassed Alara Kalama. Alara Kalama dies, and the Buddha's left with these five guys. So there were six of them studying with Alara Kalama. And the Buddha goes off alone, gets enlightened, then comes back and encounters these five guys that he was studying with before under Alara Kalama. That's the setting for the story. Shall I? Right. <clears throat> Here we go. Thus have I heard, once the Blessed One was staying in Varanasi, or uh, uh, Varanas, in the deer park at Ishipatana, also com- sometimes called Saranath. There he addressed the group of five bhikkhus. And bhikkhus is this word for renouncer, people who have gone off into the woods seeking liberation. Bhikkhus. These two extremes should not be followed by one who has gone forth from the household life, who has renounced. What are the two? Indulgence in sensual pleasure from sensual objects, which is low, vulgar, the way of ordinary people, ignoble, and unbeneficial, and the indulgence in self-mortification, which is painful, ignoble, and unbeneficial. Avoiding these two extremes the Tathagata has realized the middle path, which gives rise to vision and knowledge, leading to tranquility and insight, to enlightenment, to nirvana. And what bhikkhus is that middle path realized by the Tathagata, which gives rise to vision and knowledge, leading to tranquility and to insight, to enlightenment, to nirvana? It is this noble eightfold path, which is right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. This is the middle path realized by the Tathagata, which gives rise to vision and knowledge, leading to tranquility and to insight, to enlightenment, to nirvana. Now, bhikkhus. This is the noble truth of suffering. Birth is suffering. Aging is suffering. Illness is suffering. Death is suffering. Sorrow and lamentation are suffering. Pain, grief, and despair are suffering. Association with the unpleasant is suffering. Separation from what is pleasing is suffering. Not to get what one wants is suffering. In brief, The five skandhas aggregating are suffering. Now this bhikkhus is the noble truth of the origin of this suffering. It is this craving that leads to renewed existence and to re-becoming, accompanied by delight and lust, seeking delight here and there, that is, craving for sensual pleasure, craving for existence, craving for self-annihilation. Now this bhikkhus is the noble truth of the cessation of suffering, It is this remainderless fading away and cessation of that very craving, the giving up and relinquishing of it, freeing oneself of it, not relying on it. 
Now this bhikkhus is the noble truth of the way leading to the cessation of suffering. It is the noble eightfold path. That is right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. This is the noble truth of suffering bhikkhus. Such was the vision, the knowledge, the wisdom, the insight, the light that arose in me with regards to things not heard before. This noble truth of suffering is to be fully understood. Bhikkhus, such was the vision, the knowledge, the wisdom, the insight, the light that arose in me, in me with regard to things not heard before. This is the noble truth of suffering that has been fully understood, Bhikkhus. Such was the vision, the knowledge, the wisdom, the insight, the light that arose in me with regard to things not heard before. This is the noble truth of the origin of suffering, Bhikkhus, such was the vision, the knowledge, the wisdom, the insight, the light that arose in me with, in regards to things not heard before. This is the noble truth. Of, this noble truth of the origin of suffering is to be abandoned. Bhikkhus, such was the vision, the knowledge, the wisdom, the insight, the light that arose in me with regard to things not heard before. The noble truth of the origin of suffering has been abandoned. Bhikkhus, such was the vision, the knowledge, the wisdom, the insight, the light that arose in me with regards to things not heard before. This is the noble truth of the cessation of suffering. Bhikkhus, such was the vision, the knowledge, the wisdom, the insight, the light that arose in me with regards to things not heard before. This noble truth of the cessation of suffering is to be realized. Bhikkhus, such was the vision, the knowledge, the wisdom, the insight, the light that arose in me with regards to things not heard before. This noble truth of the cessation of suffering has been realized. Bhikkhus, such was the vision, the knowledge, the wisdom, the insight, the light that arose in me with regards to things not heard before. This is the noble truth of the way leading to the cessation of suffering. Bhikkhus, such was the vision, the knowledge, the wisdom, the insight, the light that arose in me with regards to things not heard before. This noble truth of the way leading to the cessation of suffering is to be developed. Bhikkhus, such was the vision, the knowledge, the wisdom, the insight, the light that arose in me with regards to things not heard before. This noble truth of the way leading to the cessation of suffering has been developed. Bhikkhus, such was the vision, the knowledge, the wisdom, the insight, the light that arose in me with regards to things not heard before. So long, Bhikkhus, as my knowledge and vision of these four noble truths in these three phases and twelve ways was not thoroughly purified, I did not claim to have awakened to supreme, unsurpassed enlightenment in this world with its devas, Mara, and Brahma, in this world with its ascetics and Brahmins its lords and men. But when my knowledge and vision of these four noble truths in these three phases and twelve ways was purified, then I claim to have awakened to supreme unsurpassed enlightenment in this world with its devas, Mara, and Brahma, in this world with its ascetics and Brahmins, its lords and men. The knowledge and vision arose in me. Unshakable is the liberation of my mind. This is my last birth. Now there shall be no more renewed existence. This is what the Blessed One said. Elated, the bhikkhus of the group of five rejoiced in the Blessed One's words. So there you have it. So let's go through it, shall we? There's a lot of ways in which, regarding Buddhism, this is all you need. As somebody who has studied a lot of Buddhism, it's all in here. Or 99.9% .9 of it is all in here. The basics, the deeper ideas, everything. Um, <clears throat> the Buddha begins 
with this uh, bhikkhus. These two extremes need to be avoided. What are the two extremes? Self-indulgence and self-mortification. What is usually commented on regarding that, which is to say the middle path between self-indulgence and self-mortification, the basic idea there is that the life story of the Buddha is helpful. The story of it is helpful because the idea is, is that as a prince being shuttled between his palaces, being waited on hand and foot, the Buddha as a prince had everything he wanted and in a way was indulging in self-indulgence. Just, again, anything he wanted. He had a whole harem of women, so anytime he wanted uh, sensual pleasure, anytime he wanted anything, he could have it. So that was the indulgence. Then he goes off into the woods and starts practicing austerities. Not a really a great word in English for this practice, but there's an old practice in India of what this text calls self-mortification. Um, there was a notion in India that one could gain liberation from this body and this world by overpowering it. All right, so this is a pre-Buddhist notion. This is what the Buddha studied. He studied these austerities, austerities like fasting for long periods of time, uh, austerities like practicing seated meditation for long periods of time, uh, he supposedly practiced odd things like hanging upside down f- from a tree branch for very long periods of time. Um, practices like holding one's a hand, one hand up, like you have a question, holding your hand up for very long periods of time. This is an Indian practice that's done to this day where people who take on this practice will will do this until their arm atrophies and falls off. I'm not kidding. They, it literally get the blood drains from it so much that it eventually gets so wrinkled and atrophied that it cracks off. And that's like you've made it. <laughs> right? Um, the fasting alone, just starving oneself. If you ever see images of the Buddha where he looks like a skeleton... It's actually a pre-enlightenment moment where the Buddha is practicing these austerities and he has starved himself basically to death to where he can see his spinal cord through the front. He can like look through, he's so emaciated, right? And again, before the Buddha came along, this was considered the the road to self-mastery. How can you walk across, you know, flaming coals? How can you do all these things to the body without it seemingly bothering you? The idea is you've, you're beyond that. You've mastered it. The Buddha supposedly mastered all of that and decided that that was not the way. That beating oneself to submission was not liberation. And that's what's addressed in the idea of there's self-indulgence over here just having everything you want. And then there's self-mortification, starving yourself, self-flagellation, like that idea. The Buddha said, no, no, no. It's about uh, the middle path. I've discovered the middle path, he says. Between those, he's basically saying, all you guys and gals that are doing these austerities, you're missing it. You're totally missing it. And you're actually too far that direction. 
All right. The the word the a word that gets used in the sutra is dukkha. But and this of course means suffering. But I also like to share with everybody that there is also sukha. Sukha is a word that means bliss. And there's a great Indian expression that is sukaduka. And sukaduka is an expression for the totality of possible human experience. All the way from sukha to dukkha, from bliss to suffering, right? Sukaduka, right? That's the t shirt. Now, pre Buddha, there was a whole kind of Indian philosophical system which was about maximizing sukha and minimizing dukkha. That was it. That was the name of the moral game, the name of the caste system game, the name of the karma game was about maximizing sukha, diminishing dukkha, and even within Buddhism, there is the idea of a sukhavati vyuha, a bliss world. So even before Buddha, but in Buddhism as well, there is the notion of sukha, sukhaville, <laughs> sukhavati vyuha, sukhaville, blissville, where you can go practice Buddhism and it's easier because your body doesn't hurt as much and things don't suck there. But before, <laughs> before the Buddha, though, the notion of these heavenly realms was very present and the idea was like, yeah, you could maximize sukha here, minimize dukkha, and you could eventually make it to like Sukhaville and not have to have any more dukkha. Wouldn't that be great? The Buddha actually came along and he said, actually, it's all dukkha. And if you ever think you're in sukha, you're fooling yourself. It's temporary and it's dependent upon something else. Is the, I mean, just to cut to the Buddhist chase there. Any sukha is going to be from something. My new shiny car, my new this or that. This is, sukha is dependent. And for Buddhism, the problem with that is that, oh, if you take the thing, if you take the thing away, oh, no more sukha. Oh, my sukha is dependent on that. And so Buddhism says anything that's dependent is not real. It's not lasting. It's not true. All right? But I've also used the example of, like, this is Buddhism saying anytime you're in Sukhaville, you're fooling yourself. And the idea is, like, I, I always use the analogy or the story, stupid story of, like, getting a new fancy car. Like, I just saved up all my money, and I got a new fancy car, and it's right out there on Folsom Street. And I'm sitting here nervous because I think somebody might steal it, somebody might key it. I don't know. All of a sudden, the source of my great sukha is the source of my dukkha. I'm sitting here so nervous that somebody's going to steal my new car which is the source of my happiness. But it's causing me so much dukkha, right? So this is where Buddhism puts your joy and happiness under a microscope. And it's like, is it really joyful? Your fancy new car? Is it really, you know, the payments, the monthly payments, all these things? Is that really a good time? So anyways, so the, the message of the middle road is this wisdom of 
not overindulging, but also not self-flagellating oneself, not starving oneself. The way this gets played out in Buddhism is you could eat as much as you want all the time, or you could starve yourself, or you could eat one meal a day. That's what Buddhism says. Buddhism says, no, we don't do fasting. What we do is one meal a day before noon, and we spend the rest of the day digesting. That's it. That's the middle way for Buddhism. So a a great example of not starving oneself, but not also eating all the time, right? A simple middle path. And there are many examples of how Buddhism, the practice, is this middle path. And not just in practice, in terms of the physicality of like things like eating one meal a day, but as we've explored, even this philosophy of the middle path between true and not true. Buddhism's like, how about neither true nor not true? How about somewhere right in between there? Are you comfortable there? Right? So that's the first part where he says bhikkhus, these two extremes, indulgence and sensual pleasure from sensual objects and the self, uh, what is it, the, and indulgence and self-mortification, don't do it, right? Avoiding these two extremes, right? The Tathagata, which is a title for a Buddha, but it has particular significance, The Tathagata has realized the middle path which gives rise to vision, knowledge, leading to tranquility and to insight, to enlightenment, to nirvana. Let's go through this. So this middle path, this is all just the first paragraph. This middle path gives rise to vision and knowledge. Those two are usually put together as so in the Pali it's Nyanagasana Knowledge and vision, nanagasana, Sanskrit, jnana darshan, or darshana. Has anybody ever heard this word darshan before? Yeah? So darshan is a fascinating concept. So I'll I'll talk about that for a minute. I talk about jnana all the time. So jnana is knowledge. It's where we get the R word. Our English word comes from Sanskrit comes from our English word to know comes from knowledge. This is vision, but it's darshana. In Pali, it's dasana. Um, So in many ways, it just does mean vision, but it's a really particular idea of vision. Um, just culturally, you should know that there's this thing that goes on in India where these, um, usually guys, sometimes gals too, but guys will dress up, paint themselves, and dress up like Shiva or like Krishna or like Vishnu, like one of the gods, right? So like Shiva has these three 
um, like white lines across the forehead and a crescent moon and big top knot of dreadlocks and, and all of this. And like, um, this is Shiva, the real God, um, is, meditates on a lion skin. Like there, there are all these attributes to Shiva. But then in India, there are dudes who will incarnate themselves as Shiva. So they will have giant dreadlocks, sit on a lion skin, and then what happens is, is that there are then people who revere that person as Shiva, make offerings to them as Shiva, and the idea is like, yo, that's Shiva, right there. I'd luck, lucky, lucky me. <laughs> and I'm not kidding. Like, there's people that's like, oh, oh my God, lucky me, and, and make offerings and this and that. But there's a practice in India that when somebody is dressed up like that, and sometimes, kind of like off, often, at least as I've seen it often, they're nude. All right, so they're nude. And they will just sort of sit there. And they give darshan. In India, it's what it's called, giving darshan. And what it is, is it's like, yeah, you, you gaze. You can gaze upon me. And the person sits there, like looking like Shiva, giving darshan. Darshan is this idea of vision or sight that you get to look at. You get to look at Shiva. Like again, that's like for some people, like, ooh, what an opportunity to gaze upon the God. And so that idea of darshan, the giving of darshan or the taking of it, it kind of gets really weird because even though it's vision, where I get to look at Shiva, but Shiva's giving giving it to me. So it is kind of like a, like in English when we talk about like having a vision. So not like vision, the act of sight, but vision. There's a weird idea. So in Buddhism, he, he says the middle path leads to this sort of purification of jnana or knowledge and darshan, one's vision. Take that for what it's worth. Is there a question? Oh. believe that they are being inhabited by Shiva? Is it, oh, is on their part, yeah. Service action, on like their part. Allowing Shiva to manifest through yes. the human form? Yeah, and it gets real Santaria-esque in terms of that similar idea of riding. Yeah. The, the Arisha ride the person. There's a very similar thing going on in, in that process. Yeah, there's anthropologically there's an interesting going, thing going on in cultures where people incarnate themselves as gods that way. It's wild. wild. Okay, so that was uh, so the middle path, which gives rise to vision and knowledge to nanadasana, leading to tranquility and to insight. Those are shamatha. And vipassana, vipassana. Uh, this is what calming. What does this one say? Tranquility. It gets translated a few different ways. Tranquility, vipassana, insight. And these are, of course, these sort of two uh, types or styles of. Well, I don't want to say styles or types, but they are two 
meditation practices in Buddhism. This is truly, you know, something that makes Buddhism Buddhism and not some other form of Hinduism or some other form of Jainism. This emphasis on shamatha and vipassana, calming and insight. Is that what language is? Tranquility and insight. It gets translated a bunch of different ways, but these two ideas. Calming down, shamatha is calming down. Calming, calming, calming. Calming, calming until the point where you actually have no mental activity. In the same way that you can calm the body down, and instead of being like, like this all the time, you can just be still, right? And then you can even still your breathing to, in some schools of thought, to a still point where you're not even respirating anymore. It's literally just air moving ar- like around you. Like, a, like, you know, plants don't respirate. They need wind. Like if you grow plants indoors, they need wind because they'll suffocate because they need to move. They don't have lungs, so they need to, to move in order to get new oxygen. There's an idea in meditation that a meditator can get to the point where they're like a plant and they need a good breeze in order to get the air because they're, they're solid, they're still. And then you can even still and calm down to the point where even the mind stops thinking. So you're not breathing, you're not thinking, and you're not moving. You're like, right? So that's the, the ultimate goal of shamatha is this is upeksha, is this complete equanimity. That's the goal of that. Many a school of meditation is about shamatha, calming. (coughs) And arguably, like all kinds of pre-Buddhist meditation in India was just shamatha. The shamatha was the name of the game. Like if you could calm all the way down, you could supposedly, somebody could like light you on fire. And if you're in a deep enough shamatha state, you wouldn't even notice it. You're, you're that tranquil. But what makes Buddhism Buddhism is that the Buddha introduced this vipassana. So yes, one needs to learn to calm the mind down. Yes, one needs to enter this upekshik state of equanimity. But there is a moment in Buddhism where the mind re-engages and becomes analytical. Analytical of this world we live in, analytical of what's going on internally in terms of emotions and mental thoughts. But the turn towards insight is sort of through shamatha. So you have to be calm in order to properly turn one's gaze either inward or outward. So there's a way, these are spoken about as like two wings of a bird and that in order to fly, you need to do shamatha and vipassana, otherwise you'll just fly in a circle type of a thing. Uh, Again, many types of other meditation are just shamatha, but what makes Buddhism Buddhism is this re-engagement to this analytical, insightful mind of actually looking at the inner workings of the mind and being like, where did that thought come from? I'm going to do a little digging into where that thought came from. Oh, it came from this thought. Well, I'm going to do a little digging into where that thought came from. Oh, and eventually you're doing like self-analysis, like full-on Freudian self-analysis 
and being like, oh my God, it's because of that thing my dad said to me when I was three that I don't like to do that. You can do it to yourself, but only in this Buddhist way of complementary shamatha vipassana. And a lot of times vipassana requires a trainer that you can't just instinctually do vipassana. You can instinctually do shamatha, absolutely. But instinctually doing vipassana, a little trickier. Not that it's impossible, it's just a little tricky. So avoiding the two extremes of self-indulgence and self-mortification, the Tathagata realizes the middle path, which gives rise to vision and knowledge, leading to shamatha and vipassana, to enlightenment, bodhi, and nirvana. And this is sort of like a step-by-step, that there's knowledge and vision, then that leads to the calming and the insight, which then leads to the enlightenment that leads to the nirvana. Last week we saw the eight schools of Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Some were just like, you, you just follow this and you repeat that over and over and you're going to reach enlightenment. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if these two wings mm-hmm. are for all the eight schools or for specific schools? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and I, was, I, was, I wasn't sure how much I was going to talk about last week, but absolutely the idea here is that If you're thinking of those eight schools, this is the foundation of all of them. And none of those next seven schools ever abandoned any of these ideas. In many ways, those other schools are just a a flowering, if you will, of these ideas. It's fractal. These same ideas just get spun out so it's kind of more of a flower analogy, but they, they spin out and they just get like the same ideas get deeper and deeper and crazier and crazier, but they're always the same basic ideas. It's like Buddhism actually is not that hard or I want to say hard, but like that complicated in that way. Like it's kind of actually very simple, especially if we get to these four noble truths, then it's like very simple, simple in terms of like what's, being suggested, not to realize it, you know. I, I, would, I would argue that if you have no background in, like, Christianity at all, to really understand what that religion is offering you is, like, kind of complicated. There's a lot of other things you need to be convinced of first <laughs> before then it all of a sudden makes sense. Oh, well, then that. But there's a way in which these Four Noble Truths, it's like, oh, wow, that's... Now you're talking my language. Uh, uh, Bodhi, I always like to point this one out too. This term Bodhi, which in here means enlightenment. Bodhi, the root, the etymological root of Bodhi is Bud. It's the same uh, root as Buddha. So Buddha, uh, so I should finish this. So Bud means to awaken, and it's where, so this is Sanskrit, Bodhi, Bud. Bud is the Sanskrit root of it, but it's where we get, ultimately, the English word Bud, 
like a flower bud. And the idea of a bud as an awakening of the flower, that, right? Maybe, maybe bud is onomatopoetic. Maybe it's, right? But that flowering, that is, that's where the analogy comes in. The awakening of a flower and the awakening of a person. That's buddhi. And so that's where you get this relationship between enlightenment awakening and then like opening, opening, right? The reason why, well not here, but in many of these, the reason why Buddhas are always on flowers is because they're flower children. Like they're bodhis. They are bud. So enlightenment, bud, is here, but one who is enlightened is a buddha. A Buddha, Bud, an open, uh, like flowered person, right? And so the reason why Buddhas are on flowers is because that's the, that's the metaphor or whatever that they're trying to get across to you all the time. And I often speak of Buddhism as this technique for lucid living because I've used the analogy in the past of you have, you're having a dream and you are convinced by the dream that it's real, but something happens in the dream that causes you to become lucid, lucid in the dream, right? You're having a lucid dream where, oh, this is a dream. So I was asleep before, meaning I didn't understand that this was a dream, but then I became lucid in the dream, right? This is a lucid dream, right? Well, Buddhism is saying that this reality that you live in daily is not unlike a dream, and there is a way to wake up from it, like a lucid dream. And that doesn't mean you go anywhere else. It doesn't mean you take a trip to the Sukhavati Vyuha, right? Because what happens in a dream when you become lucid? Nothing changes, right? It's just you understand it's a dream now. And you're like, oh, that's so weird. Like, I thought, I thought it was real a minute ago, and now I know it's a dream. I'm still in it. And, and it doesn't mean that the, the boogeyman couldn't pop up and come get me in that lucid dream, right? But I know what's going on. Buddhism is saying we don't know what's going on in this dreamlike reality here, but there are techniques to become lucid. And it's just like a lucid dream where you become lucidly awake. And that's called bodhi. That's called awakening. Lucid living. Right? And one who does that is a Buddha. So there's that. And then Nirvana is, etymologically means to blow out. Literally, if you had a candle flame and you went, that would be to Nibban. Nibban, gone, out. Nibbana, or in, in Pali they say Nibbana, in, in Sanskrit, Nirvana means gone, but what's gone, what is blown out, is desire, all desire, all desire. That's, that's the flame of life. The flame of life is desire, the wanting. It's what keeps the candle burning. And so Buddhism talks about putting the flame of desire out. So that's that. Questions about this first paragraph? Great. So then the next one, and what bhikkhus is that middle path realized by the Tathagata? Well, it's the Eightfold Path. 
this is the basics of Buddhism, right? Um, we can spend a little time on that, on the Eightfold Path. The first one's probably the most important, arguably the most important, right view. Right view is called Samya Drishti. And if you ever, uh, some of you may have heard of a Drishti before. They talk about Drishtis a lot in Asana Yoga. Um, asana Yoga is like regular yoga. Everybody do a Drishti in yoga, the gaze. So in a lot of times yoga teachers will invite you to gaze softly in the distance, like where you're not focused on like the chairs or the wall. It's just sort of a, a soft gaze into the distance. That gazing is called a drishti. But what the word means though is translated as a view. And yeah, they're talking about seeing, but they're sort of talking about seeing. And what and, and a lot of times people are curious when it says like right view. Right intention, right speech, like that's a little vague. Like right effort, or like what, is it, what does it mean to be right? Like correct, samya. What does samya mean? What does samyak mean, right? Well, in terms of right view, there's a, a literal way to have a right view in Buddhism. And it's mainly seeing all things as impermanent, without a soul, self or soul, without an individuality, and ultimately as a source of suffering. That is the samya drishti, according to like Pali original Buddhism. The correct view of reality is viewing all things as being impermanent, without a self, anatman, which means not an individual entity, and all things as being a source of suffering. That's actually the right view according to Pali Buddhism. Mahayana Buddhism will say that Samya Drishti is about emptiness, viewing all things as dependently originated and therefore empty. That is a more Mahayana view of it. I thought that was the same thing as not self, which was the second thing. And, and indeed. And I always sort of say that the sort of early Buddhism and Mahayana Buddhism are not at odds with each other. It's a matter of emphasis. And early Buddhism emphasizes impermanence, where th things don't last, so don't get too attached to them. <coughs> Mahayana focuses on the no-self part, where it's like, yo, there's not even a chair there to begin with, to be impermanent. So it's just a shift, yeah. I would, I would say that your, your instinct is right on, and it is a problem of language. language. I have heard this samya or samyak, correct or right, described as um, like if your shoulder were to pop out of socket, and that would hurt, and it would be wrong. It's wrong. 
And it's like, as soon as you get it in there, it's like, oh yeah, that's right. That's right. It's like in the groove. It's like a, like a record. It's like you're in the groove. Or like if you're a band, you're in the cut. You're in, you're in the groove, right? I don't know if you guys, everybody plays music, but if, you're, if a band is in the cut, if they're in the groove, it's right. It's right. That's what samya means. It's, it's like in accord with, not right or wrong. And it's a problem with, with language and translation. That in English, that it's like right has to be wrong. Or, or right implies wrong in that way. So yeah, your instincts are right to... Oh, and I definitely need to say this on this point of what does right view and right livelihood and right, what does that mean? That's what splinters Buddhism into 18 schools is people wondering, what does that mean? I mean, you know, right, uh, I think it falls into the category of right action. But, you know, there's an early schism in Buddhism over a group of Buddhists that were carrying salt around to, for a variety of reasons. It's an essential human you know, need. But there was a group that said, that's wrong action. That's, that's, the Buddha said we were not to, we're, we beg for food and eat it. We don't store stuff. And so there was the school that was like, no salt. They, they carried it around in a horn, in a, in like a, maybe even a rhinoceros horn or something. It's some kind of horn, they carried around salt. And so there was the salt horn group. And they were like, yo, they're practicing like wrong action. They're like deep in the, in the mire of it with their salt. And like we're over here like doing it the right way. <laughs> So just one example of how, what does right action mean? It could be as, as small a detail as that and taken by some very seriously. So, um, but right view is, whether it's this extreme one of, of right and wrong, illusory, it's right view is about how you see this world. And there's a mistaken view of this world <laughs> that buys into Mara's lies <laughs> And there is the right view of the world, the, this Buddhist view that has something to do with impermanence, something to do with the illusory nature of it, something to do with this, like, all right, ah, there's, I get it, there's something going on here. It's not just how it seems. That's moving towards right view versus this incorrect view, which is just taking things at face value, something like that. Okay. Uh, so right view is about seeing the world properly in, in like having Buddhist lenses on. The Buddhist lenses of impermanence, no self, emptiness, something to that effect. And again, what right is will split Buddhism up into schools. Um, uh, right intention is about having the right intentions towards things. I could go through all of these. 
right speech is mainly about not lying. It's about truthfulness and avoiding deceit. That is what right speech means. Yes, it includes like profanity and things, but not for everybody. It depends on the school of Buddhism. But traditionally, speech is about um, what right speech means is truthful speech versus intentionally deceitful speech. I heard it also referred to as like speech that's not harmful in like speech like gossiping, anything that would would incite violence or is be unkind or cruel or yes. whatever. Indeed, indeed, and this is really you know these are if you think about them in terms of intention, speech, action, livelihood, a lot of them are about behavior towards the other. And so the the Eightfold Path is sort of, yeah, it's a prescription for individual behavior, but it's actually kind of a prescription for group behavior. And so they're open to interpretation based on the group that is saying like, we're a Buddhist group and our Eightfold Path says that right is this or that. Definitely nonviolence is, you know, you know, I've sat with so many different Buddhist groups and listened to their interpretation of this. Nonviolence is often at the top of how to, how to think of any of these is ahimsa. Ahimsa is this word for nonviolence. And it's like, yeah, you just think of nonviolence. So right livelihood means your job. Does your job involve violence or not? And that could be a variety of things. But traditionally, it was like a butcher a soldier, these things, and it was like, that's wrong livelihood if you're involved in a violent act or something like that. Uh, so speech, action, livelihood, effort. Effort's a funny one. Just, it gets interesting about effort. Uh, and then mindfulness is sati. If you've ever done the satipatthana, the four foundations of mindfulness, this word mindfulness is sati, S-A-T-I fundamental part of Buddhist practice. Um, and then right concentration, you should know, is samadhi, this like highest stage of Buddhist meditation. Traditionally, effort, mindfulness, and concentration are sort of part of this family of the like what we would call meditation. I often say this, that it's unfortunate that we in English only have one word, meditation. And it's like, or what, you know, it's like we have one word and therefore it's like one thing, you know. And in Buddhism, there's not one word for meditation at all, at all. There's a whole world of these things. And there's dhyana, which is different than dharana, which is different than samadhi, which is different than sati, which is different than shmurti, which is different than bhavana. All these are, are activities that we would call Meditation, right? We would do, call that act, and they have a whole you know, world of different, slightly, like mindfulness is very different than shamatha. Because <laughs> mindfulness, sati, is actually awareness of something, holding something, like focusing on it. Um, and the satipatthana, the mindfulness practices, are actually your ability to harness your mind on something. Uh, most of us are sort of taken away by our senses. Most of us are like, whoa, what was that? Oh, wait, what'd you say? Oh, just we're, the senses happen and then we're just following them. 
right? But the practice of Buddhism and many meditation traditions is about mind mastery. So that if you wanted to concentrate on an object for a half an hour, solid, and I'm not going to think about anything but this for 30 minutes, mastery is the ability to do that. Non-mastery is... Oh, wait. 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 The inability to harness the mind, right? So mindfulness is that ability to harness the mind on one thing. Samadhi, though, concentration, that's a whole other thing. That is a whole other practice, okay? And what does right concentration mean? Or what does right samadhi mean? What does right mindfulness mean? Also where Buddhism splits into different schools and sects and things like that. Especially when my samadhi is better than your samadhi. Right? And you get into these Buddhist camps that my samadhi is better than yours and so this is righter. Right? More right samadhi. But that's what the words mean. Um, da, 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 da. Any questions about the Eightfold Path? Again, very basic, fundamental Buddhism. Um, and then we get the Four Noble Truths. This is the Noble Truth of Suffering, right? Birth is suffering. Aging is suffering. Illness is suffering. Death is suffering. Sorrow and lamentation. Pain, grief, and despair. Association with the unpleasant. Separation from what is pleasant. It's all suffering. Not to get what one wants is suffering. Does anybody have any question about this idea of dukkha? This Buddhist idea that actually says, actually, no. <laughs> it's all dukkha. Initially, for many folks, this is a very pessimistic worldview. That it's all dukkha. All things are a source of your suffering. That is a kind of a heavy pill to swallow. Uh, quick question. Yep. You mentioned Sukha as uh, a dependent source. Dukkha is as well, is it not? It's all dependent. That's the point. <laughs> that is the point. Um, can you talk a little about the, how you would translate Dukkha? I've just heard various versions of it, and I know when I first heard of it, it the word suffering in English to me, it implies like, whoa, like, you know, I broke my arm or, yep. you know, my lover left me or something. It's like, whoa. But, it, but then I've heard people say it's, you know, big dissatisfaction also. So yep. I'm just wondering of the range that, that the Buddha was talking about. I like, would, in, in my understanding of it, in this really intense statement that everything's dukkha and with this kind of disavow of there being such a thing as sukkha, my understanding is that it, it is that whole range of experience that could be just slightly anxious and dissatisfied all the way up to pulling your hair out, gnashing your teeth, gut-wrenching, actual, like, what we would call suffering. It's everything in between that. And what I think the Buddha is saying here is, is that if you're participating in Mara's realm here, the realm of desire here, it's all dukkha. 
it's all going to be dukkha. It's all going to be disappointing. It's all going to be a source of suffering. Now, again, what I'm saying is, is that in regards to your question too about sukha or dukkha being dependent, right? And Buddhism is saying, yeah, the problem is it's all dependent. That's what's going on. What I have said recently about Buddhism is that what it is offering you or offering the person who participates in it is a joy, ananda, or a bliss, even, sukha they talk about, that is independent. That is coming, quote, unquote, from within, like a well or a fountain. It's not based on my stuff making me happy, and then when the stuff goes away, where'd my stuff go, right? Buddhism is, is, is offering you a way to tap into ananda, to joy, to sukha, to bliss that is independent. It's not, it doesn't come from something. And independent, unconditioned dharma in Buddhism is called nirvana. That idea of nirvana, the idea of the state is that it is independent, not dependent on anything. You've actually completely stopped depending on anything and everything. And therefore you are now independent. That's nirvana. And it's described as blissful, joyful, all of these things. So the bliss is there. We just have behavior to get in the way. Yes. And those, so that's how the dukkha is uh, contingent. It's contingent upon us doing, forgive me, wrong or even simpler, second noble truth. The cause of suffering is clinging, attachment. It's actually, it's, you don't even have to go through the Eightfold Path. It's simpler than that. And it's what I, this is what I meant by Buddhism is actually so simple. It's so simple you can pantomime it. It's like this. That's it. I just did the Four Noble Truths in pantomime. You don't, even, you don't even need language. Clinging. This is the second note. The second noble truth is that this activity of clinging, and I always love to point this out, that Buddhism, they say there's basically three clingings. Stuff, my wallet, my money, my clothes, all of this stuff, right? Ideas. So you can cling to stuff. But you can also cling to ideas, ideas like political party, ideas like religious affiliation. You can cling to ideas of I'm right, you're wrong, my political party is better than your political party, my country is better than your country, my ideology is better than your ideology. Whatever it is, we can cling to ideas. So we can cling to stuff, we can cling to ideas, and thirdly, we cling to the self. And so we are sitting there clinging to the self, praying we don't get any older, certainly praying we don't die, right? So we're clinging to our notion of self, clinging to our ideas of what we think is right or wrong, and clinging to our stuff. So the first noble truth is this is all suffering. The second noble truth is that the suffering is being caused by the clinging. The third noble truth is this one. That if you stop the clinging, you don't suffer. 
a simple equation. And the fourth noble truth is, well, then how do I do that, Buddha? How you make it look so easy, right? You just don't, you just don't attach. But how do I do that? Well, you can start by seeing the world correctly, having the right intention in it, doing the right action, speech, da-da-da, the Eightfold Path. The eight, following the Eightfold Path is the prescription for how to successfully become not attached, to decling. That's Buddhism. We're all clinging to ideas, stuff, and ourself, and we, could, we all have the ability right here and right now to stop doing that and be totally liberated. It's tricky because these are, in, in the language of Buddhism, these are karmic accruals. We've been doing this so long. We've been clinging like this for so long. It's hard to stop. But in Buddhism, it doesn't mean you couldn't right now. Just like, oh, then, screw that then. <laughs> you could. But again, it's tricky because of the accrual. It builds up, right, like a film. Questions? In the world of, of like when Buddhism started, everyone did everyone believe in reincarnation? Like, was there like a soul kind of issue they were trying to deal with? Absolutely, absolutely. It seems that the general worldview of everybody in India, for the most part, was one of we are part of this cycle of death and rebirth and death and rebirth, and that there is something like a soul. This is not Buddhism. This is pre-Buddhism. There's something like a soul, a real you, that doesn't look like this, but it's a real you that pops out when you die and goes into a new body. And then that body with, that, with your soul goes until that dies. And it just keeps going around and around and around. This is the basic Indian worldview. See, I don't really know, I don't really know what people think. I used to know what people, I used to have ideas about what people think. Now I don't know what people think. But I would say in a general way that like, you know how we're kind of a Christian country, but we're not really. It's like in God we trust and all that. And it's kind of like built into it. And we get, we pretend like we're not, but we kind of are. And we still take Christmas off, but I don't know. You know, it's like we all act like we're Christian that way, where we do the holidays. And what I was going to say is that, that there's sort of a general Western spiritual view of a God and a heaven and maybe a hell and punishment. You know what I mean? Like, you don't have to be like a Bible thumper or even a, you just have these like a general notion of what might be going on. And maybe people don't think about it at all. Maybe people think about it a lot. But that general structure of God, heaven, and hell, well, in the same way that we all kind of have that to varying degrees, I would argue that in India, the general worldview is one of reincarnation, going round and round and round. Some people are really into that idea, but the general view that everybody has is not one of God and heaven. It's actually one of karmic retribution and uh, reincarnation. So that's a general worldview that everybody was dealing with. The Buddha came along and sort of surprised everybody with his answer to the problem. Everybody else was like, well, I got to get good karma points. Because if I get good karma points, I can get reborn in a fancy house. Or I could even be reborn in a, in a 
heavenly house. So it's a game of, of merit points. And so I'm going to just do good acts. Whether I mean them or not doesn't matter. I'm just going to like do good merit so that I get guaranteed my good rebirth. The Buddha came along and was like, well, that's a great way to stay stuck in the cycle. And so his method is actually this new way of thinking about all this. Does it, yeah, no, that's good. Does it answer the question of like, are we a thing or are we just riding a thing? With, and consciousness is not like, I, I assume that Buddhism was saying we are consciousness, but it doesn't seem to be saying that. It seems to be saying that's part of what we are. But we're not, well, our essence isn't consciousness. I don't know, this is sort of an annoying question, but I, no. I'm kind of wondering, does it actually kind of address that? Or is it more like, I don't, you know, whatever you want to think or whatever. Well, I'm glad you asked, because we have 15 minutes left, and it's and that's a plenty of time. Uh, you don't have to. No, I want to. No, it's right here. It's a great question. You're 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 lobbing it up, so let's let's do it. So he says here this idea of that everything is suffering. So I'm on the first noble truth still, and he's saying, guess what, folks? Uh, you'll look for sukkah all day, but you'll never find it, right? So, it's no truth of suffering. Birth is suffering, da-da-da-da-da. In brief, the five aggregates are suffering. This, okay, this is it. This is like everything I was just talking about, where like, oh, reincarnation and karma and all of that. And everybody believed in a soul. They believed in a real them, a real me. And I... I spend almost every Sunday night explaining how we, st- we do this still. We believe in a self. And we've just, we've just called it DNA the, it, here in the West. But we are all searching for the true me. The true this. And again, I, I see the pursuit of DNA information as the new soul. That's the new Western version of who am I really? What am I at the, at the lo- smallest microscopic level? Oh, I might, I'm not saying you do. I'm just saying that in general there is a new... I don't think that. Neither do I. I'm not on the DNA train. But there are... It's a, you, you know what I'm talking about, though. And I just mean to say that there are people that are interested in soul souls. Like, I don't even know how to imagine a soul. But there's people that are like interested in souls. But I like to point out that the search for the smallest individual sense of self, that's called the soul. And we currently do it in all these other scientific ways. So, but that desire to find the, the real, that's what the Buddha's talking about. And so everybody was looking for the real, and he came along and he said, there isn't a real. There isn't an essential you. None. So we all again we all believe in and it it's reinforced by the fact that we have names. But we all believe in our own individuality. And I if there, Bodhisattva's in the room. I apologize. If you're really not attached, you know I'm not talking about it. But for the most part, 
we all believe in a self. We believe in our individuality. Like, I'm here. I dressed myself today. Like, I believe in my individuality. And I believe in my past. That I was there an hour ago. That I was there 10 years ago. I was there 20 years ago. I was there 30 years ago. I was there 40 years ago. The notion that I was present when I was born and when I went to my first day of elementary school. The notion that there is an experiencer of your life that has been the experiencer of your life, the recipient of all your emotions and feelings, the person who was doing all of that. We all believe in that person, in the self. The Buddha said, guess what? It's a very elaborate illusion reinforced by things like names. And that actually, this is the momentary coalescence of rupa, form, matter, stuff, sensations. I'll just call them perceptions for now, but I'm going to get into that. These are the five aggregates of which the Buddha speaks. So he says it's all suffering, and it's actually all suffering because this is actually what's going on. You are a mass of flesh with sensory organs made out of flesh, a tongue made out of flesh. So you are rupa, and through those bodily organs made of flesh, you are having, having sensations. These are called vidana. You are also something called samya, transited as perceptions, but the way I always explain this is, is that what samya is, is that you have been trained your whole life to process information in a certain way. And so when you are presented with a scene, behold a scene, you do not, if I were to say, what is this? In order to make that assessment, you actually look, even though it's in, the, in a nanosecond, you look at all this and go, oh, it's a bowl. But you've actually processed the whole thing in order to make that determination. What samya means is, samya is associative thought patterns, meaning that when you see this next to that, you think it means this. The way your mind has been trained to divide up this world and make sense of it is unique to you. It's similar to the way we've all been trained. That's the way language and communication works. But your minds, the way you divide the world up is unique to you. And that's your samya. I often use this uh, to, to accentuate this point that this process of samya, the fact that we perceive whole scenes and then divide it up to make sense of it, marketers and advertisers know this very well because they know that if you're looking at a scene and there is a Coke bottle down in the corner 
they know that you'll see it. They know that you will process it. Even if you didn't, quote unquote, even if your conscious mind didn't, advertisers know about Samya. They don't know about it from Buddhist point of view in terms, but they know that human beings see the whole thing. And when you're looking at somebody talk and, it, and they've got a bookcase behind them, you're processing that. And you're like, wow, that person must be smart. They're in front of a bunch of books, right? <laughs> but that's the way it works. You're, you, you see what I'm saying? So that process of dividing information is called samya. And again, it's unique to you. It's unique to each of us, how we do that. It's similar to everybody else, but all in our unique own way. I get really confused about the, the interplay between perceptions and conditioning. I mean, I understand well, the associations, but, but that's unique to your... I know it's all interdependent, and, and, but those two seem so closely tied, it's hard for me to, to sort them, sort of. Let's sort them. This is samskara. which for those etymologists in the room is very similar to samsara, and that's not just a coincidence. Samskara, I translate it as conditioning, and so what samskara is, is in the same, so I said that samya is when you are presented with a scene, and in order to understand what this is, you need the other stuff to make sense of it. What samskara is, is past emotional stuff. And what the example I use is a terrible example, but when, when you were born, if somebody showed you this and then went bull, bam! <laughs> the next time they went bull, you might be like, you would have developed a samskara, a conditioned reaction to bulls. So now, most of us are like, ooh, where's the cereal and milk? We've can develop that conditioning. But conditioning is just, and it's not just like mental scars and things like that. This is the totality of the way we think is the conditioning from our past experiences, being shown things, told what they are, and then associated them with something, associated them with a feeling of, be, of belonging, feeling good, feeling bad, whatever. We've built up a relationship with it. So that the next time I encounter it, I don't just encounter it fresh. I'm always bringing my baggage. I'm, so in order to understand this, like this, it's tricky because I have all the other bowls I've seen before. I have all that other conditioning that's kind of forcing my mind to see this in only one way. So, it's like so that's different than the the recognition of the scene so this samya is about what it's next to mm -hmm. physically samskara is about what it's next to in my mind from the past but isn't that like the, uh, that person's in front of books they must be smart isn't that something that you learned in the past mm -hmm. that, that, that was him it's just what she was saying these are all very interrelated but that process that just that process of what's going on here? Oh, it's a smart dude in front of a thing, in front of a thing. Like the deducing or figuring out what that is, that operates via fleshy organs, receiving sensations, figuring it out, processing it through all my past, and, and then I have a conscious... And then when you go, oh, he's smart, 
Yeah, I mean, you see how they're kind of related that way. So yeah, maybe the, the judgment, oh, he must be smart, is coming from a conditioning of the past. But the deduction that those are books are coming from his glasses. And I mean that in a very odd way. That's like a dependent origination idea there, that the reason why there are books is because you read books and you need glasses. There's dependent origination, uh, dependent origination is A, too much to get into at this hour, but it is this deep idea that involves Sonia, which is that when I'm processing what something is, the amount of information I'm going through in order to come to that deduction or that conclusion, it's vast. It's vast. In fact, in some schools of thought, the entire universe is being created every time I try to think of something. Say that again? Like, perceptions is what a thing is. That's books. That's a bowl. Mm -hmm. And then conditioning is what that bowl represents to me. I better flinch. And then it um, seems like then part of what we're doing in, when we're doing Vipassana, the analytical, is trying to break all these things apart and notice the difference between when I see that bowl, I'm naming it a bowl, and I'm responding to it in this way, and I'm noticing that I'm responding to it in this way, mm -hmm. and it looks this way. And so I'm trying to break apart these aggregates. Yes. Is that right? Mm -hmm. okay. And just to, to complement that, shamatha would be trying to zone it out. Right. Like right. not thinking about it at all. <laughs> really actually literally blurring it to where it blurs in. Talk about samya. It's like get rid of the samya to where it really begins to just blur and there's no more bowl. That's shamatha where you're calming into a state of enlightenment versus analyzing yourself into a state of enlightenment. Consciousness or vijnana is the last one. And this is, this is consciousness. Now, it's tricky in Buddhism because we actually have six simultaneous sources of consciousness firing all at once that we experience as a fluid single thing. But it's actually six consciousnesses operating in tandem Arguably, eight consciousnesses argue, uh, operating in tandem. So, here is the thing. Six consciousnesses. An eyeball consciousness processing light information. An ear consciousness processing auditory information. A body processing tactile information. A tongue processing taste sensations. And a nose processing olfactory sensations. And a brain processing thought formations. So you are six vijnanas operating simultaneously and that vijnana, that consciousness, you could think of your consciousness, your thinking, as coursing through the channels of your samskara. Right? So like your thinking is limited to your past experiences and it's tough to just all of a sudden have a brand new idea. I don't rule it out. Buddhism doesn't rule it out. But it says, normally our, our mind follows the conditioning habits. Yep, I got up, time for coffee. Da -da -da, da -da -da. Check the email. We're in these grooves, and so our consciousness, if you think of it as like a fluid, just metaphorically, it flows through these channels of samskara, right? 
And then this, well, let's do it this way again. So you have these fleshy organs that receive, come into contact with stuff, and then you have sensations. Your bodily organs, all six of them, use this process of samya to figure out what's going on. Then the samskara is how should I feel about what's going on? And then finally I'm thinking about it. So that's how it's all operating. The most important part from a Buddhist perspective is that your consciousness is changing with every single thought you have. So the consciousness you have now is in no way the consciousness it was 10 minutes ago. You're so much smarter than you were 10 minutes ago, right? You have so much more information than you had 10 minutes ago. So your consciousness is totally different, constantly changing. Your conditioning is constantly changing based on your exposure to things. Maybe slight, maybe dramatic, depends on what happens. But your conditioning is always morphing and changing. Your perceptions are also changing. And again, these are unique to you, but also changing based on your experiences. The, when I presented this to you before, last week, it was different than it is now. So it always changes. Your sensations, of course, are different. We have the heat on earlier, it was hot. Turned it off, now it's getting cool. So your sensations are always changing. And then even science tells us that the physical material that makes us up is constantly changing. That the cells are dying, going down the drain, and being replenished by new cells. And the idea here is, is that your physical form, your sensations, your perceptions, your conditioning, your consciousness are all changing. So there's never a static you to be a you. And the reality is, is that it's six consciousnesses coursing through this ever-changing channel of samskara through these perceptions, through different sensations, through always changing organs. But you think you're you think you're you. Just like I think I'm me, that I was born, went to school, now I'm here teaching you, I'm gonna go home tonight. I believe in all of that. But Buddha, the Buddha is saying, actually, there are these five skandhas momentarily coalescing together. And by the way, the language of the sutra is the five aggregates of clinging. I say the five skandhas aggregating. The idea here is, is that we are these bundle of aggregations, or we are an aggregation of these five Dharmas, they're called, these five principles. But they're constantly changing. And it's five or 11, or I mean, there's so many. But we all just think, no, no, it's one. One dude, one name, one life, one experience. So that's clinging to a self, right? So cling to stuff, cling to ideas, cling to the notion of a self. Or I think about what the Buddha's talking about, and I'm like, oh, wow, that's interesting. I'm a lot taller than I was when I was two, right? I'm having a lot different sensations than when I was two. Totally different samya, totally different samskara, totally different consciousness. So what is it that connects me to that two-year-old? If it's not our physical form or the sensations we're having, the perceptions we're having, the conditioning we're under, or the consciousness. 
what connects in order for me to say it was me, right? Little five-year-old me going to elementary school with his little lunch pail, what allows me to say that was me? What's the thread? What is the thing? Kodachrome. What? Kodachrome. What's that? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. Yeah, like your parents keep telling you stories from when you were little. Like there's, there's oh, yes. I got it. <laughs> Took a minute. Yes, indeed. Indeed. Interesting, though. So memory is this idea of what connects it, right? But the Buddha's saying it, what, what's going on is that there's a, a karma train, meaning that the, the, the five, here's the five skandhas coalescing, and they, via their action, collectively bump a new me into existence. Oh, look, I've got related, related rupa, related vidana, and then the actions of this person bump the next me into existence, and then the next me, and the next me, and the next me. And so I keep bumping the next me, and that's the connective thread, is the karma bumps. But there's no material thread. There's no actual connection. But we're under the illusion that there is. You look at that picture of you with the little lunch pail, and you're like, yep, that was me. Not that's a, the karmic ramifications that led to me. You don't think like that. You're like, no, that was me. And Buddhism is saying that's clinging to itself and that there's wisdom and liberation in not doing that. Do you think this is reinforced by the, I mean, the sense that even though, of course, my form is always changing, I have this idea that that little pilot or whatever, it has, I mean, I have the same container. I'm this container that is separate from Jenny's container and I'm around all these other contained individuals and even though all of that's changing, that it's not just the name, but it's the idea that, that I have those memories and I have those things. How accurate those are is completely open to question, but the idea that, 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 that that's that continuity and that is this arrangement or whatever arrangement will be in the future that is going to end and cease and stop being. Like, are those the things that we... that? I, how do I escape? How do I escape from that idea that I'm I'm inside that that this all of these ever changing things are inside this container and it's my container and well the, I would say that the the container speech is problematic from a Buddhist point of view because a we've just said there's there's the container no containers changes. yeah there's it's a it's an ever shifting container so. The Buddha would challenge you and say, which container? Yeah. The one when you were five or this one? Because they're not the same. And so which one is it? You know? And that's so, I mean, how to do this? Practice, practice, practice. Okay. <laughs> but it's, I want to say in a way it's easier than you might be thinking <laughs> because one, I guess it's like, Boy, it's, it's, it's a little late to try, really try to Sorry. go for full liberation <laughs> from the, the self. I want out. I, no, I know. Tell me how. <laughs> I, I mean, I guess, I, I mean, I hear you. I hear you. I, I, would, I would just say, for simplicity's sake, I would say that this action of non-attachment, 
that I always pantomime as this, this action of not clinging, is, it's always the same. Even though it, 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 in terms of my stuff and my ideas and myself, it might seem like it's different, that I hoard stuff, but I, I journal my ideas and I work on myself. Or, you know what I, I, I don't know. But you know what I mean? Like the clinging going on might manifest itself differently depending on what we're clinging to. But Buddhism is saying that that actual mental activity of clinging is always the same. It's a, it's a stubbornness. It's a, it's a pig-headed stubbornness about everything, about what you think, about what you know. And the solution is this very relaxed position of not clinging. And it's not apathetic. It's not, I don't care. It's not like, oh, you know, whatever, whatever. It's not that. It's, 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 the idea is if you're doing it right, you're overwhelmed with compassion. If you're really doing non-clinging right, you're overwhelmed with compassion. If you, if you are not overwhelmed with compassion, then you are not actually not clinging. You're doing something else, I would argue. But the idea here is, is that is that activity, again, of just not clinging is just this very kind of soft approach to the world, to the self, to everything, where we often do it philosophically, where it's like in terms of real or not real, the Buddhist one is, well, neither real nor not real. I don't, I don't want to be so violent in coming down and that's right, that's not right. Buddhism is not into such it's like actually softer than that. But it's not a wishy-washy me. Well, maybe, maybe not. It's actually from a place of wisdom that you're saying neither nor. Neither real nor not real. I, and I know that. I, it's like I know why that is. I'm not just saying that. That's a very, again, this soft approach. And so how that would manifest in terms of this five-year-old self is recognizing, yes, there's an intimate relationship between you and that five-year-old. I mean, deep, deep relationship. But there's a softer way of not holding that. And I promise you, and we read a sutra, the Sword of Wisdom Sutra, where it's talking about how you could forgive yourself of a lot of shit you're holding on to from the past by this softness that I'm talking about where we hold on to our old selves sometimes very harshly. And I'm talking about the holding on of an old self where you're beating yourself up about something that you should have done or could have done, things like that. That's an, a past self that's gone. Bye. And you holding on to it in the past, which is gone, but you being like, oh, but I should have, I could have. That's suffering. Because of the clinging. And if you have that softer forgiveness in terms of like, well, it wasn't really me. And again, you don't get to do this out of laziness. You don't get to do this to avoid your karma. You only get to do this out of wisdom where you can say that wasn't me. It, the Buddha told me it wasn't me. It was a past formation of karma that led to me. But I can forgive myself of those past quote unquote sins by recognizing it wasn't me. There is no me. So, soft, not so, right? 
That's my advice. I just got to stop clinging. <laughs> I'm clinging to this idea of not clinging. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Soft on that too, right? Soft on the pursuit. Soft on the pursuit in terms of like, that's it. I'm going to do this. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't work like that. Soft on the pursuit. All right. Thank you, everybody, ever much. Thank you. Ah, my great pleasure. Next Sunday. It's next Sunday. Yes. Wow. Is that true? It is. It's true. It's true. (laughs) Next Sunday.